Hello all, uh, this is Raj uh, with another episode of Direct Shift Stories with our special guest, uh, Kathleen McLean. Uh, thank you, Kathleen, for joining us on this episode of Direct Shift Stories. And we are joined by uh, my boss, uh, COO of Direct Shift's Wamshi. Uh, so in case if your uh, life's motto is to love, live and lead out loud, you should be listening to this episode of uh, Direct Shift Stories. Uh, before I jump into the professional side of what Kathleen McLean Group is, I would say uh, Kathleen uh, is one of the uh, best uh, or awesome persons out there, uh, quite active on LinkedIn, quite active on social media. Uh, she has been married to her high school sweetheart for 25 years and has got four amazing children. I wanted to begin from the personal side because we are not happy in our work unless we are happy uh, with our uh, family members, unless we are happy with our children. So um, definitely uh, she had created an impact. She involved in many women's initiatives. She had uh, helped many groups in a result-oriented approach, um, both personally and financially helping many uh, lives. Uh, so without any further ado, I would uh, hand it over to Wamshi. Uh, over to you, Wamshi. Thank you. Thank you, Raj. Kathleen, welcome to Direct Thank Shift's uh, platform. It's a pleasure and privilege to have a leader like you in our space. For all uh, audience out there, um, Kathleen is, as far as I know and as I understand, is a social worker at heart, he is somebody that affects positive change inside and outside um, and leads the Kathleen, the, the McLean Consulting Group, which is heavily focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion at various organizations, schools, small and medium firms, large organizations, etc. So two things that Kathleen really represents, social work for change and diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, two philosophies that are very close to our heart. And that's why I'm really, really excited today to present Kathleen McLean to you all uh, and brainstorm with her on what her journey has been, what motivated her to be where she is today, and what are some of the recommendations and observations that she has for people that are trying to pursue various careers for organizations at a time where we are living today, where discussions about health, health equity, race, etc., are becoming our parts of our everyday lives, leaders like Kathleen McLean are doing their part to affect positive change. And hence, I believe this discussion is going to be important for all of us so that people like us, our organization and you all can do your part with respect to affecting positive change. So without much further ado, Kathleen, welcome to our platform again. Oh, and I thank would, you. Great. Um, I would ask you to start by giving us additional information about yourself and more importantly, tell us what led you, what evolved you into where you are today from, from the beginning. I'm really keen on understanding what motivated you to take up social work, to get a bachelor's degree in social work, and then move on to affecting change in group settings and if eventually move on to creating your consulting to affect positive change in the DEI space. Vamshi, thank you so much for welcoming me, for your kind words. I truly appreciate it. To all the audience that's out there, 
Welcome. Thank you so much. They take the time to listen to my words. I feel humbled and honored to be asked to be on the show. I That's such an interesting question. To start from the beginning, I have to go back to being a child of 13 years old. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. My parents are both from the beautiful island of Haiti, Haiti. So for my Haitian people out there, I want to say sac passe. That means how's it going? And then you say not boule. And not boule means you're burning. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and I lived in the projects in Vandeveer Estates, 1414 Brooklyn Avenue. I did not like living there. The conditions were not good. My parents worked very hard and did the best that they could. Fast forward my mother and my father said, hey, would you and your sister, you know, would like to go to Haiti? And then we went to Haiti. Haiti was an absolutely life-changing experience for us. I was 13, my sister was 11. We stayed in a beautiful mansion at Mr. Metelis and Lise's house, my mother's dear friends that she grew up with. The home was such opulence everywhere we went comparatively to what you see in the pictures of Haiti was nothing I experienced. It wasn't naked people that were hungry. It was opulence. It was people with a lot of money, beautiful homes, beautiful terraces. And one day we were out and about on our way home from one of these beautiful homes that we visited with our you know, fake aunt and uncle. Mr. Mitteli said, hey, you know, I'm going to be stopping at this market. Why don't you all do get out the car? Because we were going from the country back to the city. And I got out of the car with my sister and I walked around. And then as I walked around, I ran, I stumbled upon a Haitian woman. And this Haitian woman, Vamshi, had was bare breasted in one hand. She had her son, and in the other hand, she had her hand out for money. I was just broken and shaken inside. What I saw was abject poverty, and I had never seen that before. The following two days, I couldn't get her out of my mind. And therefore, when I came home, I said to my mother, I said, Mommy, I just want to let you know first, I'm sorry for complaining because I've always had everything I needed and I know you're doing your best and I know that you cannot afford to buy a private home and that we could live in a nicer area. So mommy, first of all, I'm sorry for that. Second of all, I am going to be a social worker and I am going to change the world. You kind of... Um left me speechless there, Kathleen, uh, for a moment. Um, kudos to you for saying that, for taking it up, for taking it up as a positive challenge. We have seen, and we've worked with many social workers in our space where you know, we are trying to kind of uh, affect positive change in the healthcare recruiting and staffing space. And we are doing a lot of work in the mental health space and work with a lot of social workers. It, until about a few months ago, I really did not, I wouldn't say I had full understanding of how and why people actually transform into these roles and these jobs. But having heard 
stories and the one that you just mentioned, I think I have a better and full understanding of what really motivates people to pick up social work, mental health work. And we know because we see the need every day that it is really important. And we are happy that many people are choosing this profession. Many people are choosing to create that impact. Now, having said that, give us a, a little understanding of it must not have been easy. There must have been moments where you felt like this was a challenge. There must have been moments where I'm sure you felt the lows, the failures. So what were some of those challenges and the troubling times which probably you faced, but you still had to plow through? Because I'm sure there are a lot of our clinicians out there that probably are facing different similar kinds of challenges. So what are some of those challenges that you faced? What would your suggestions be when people are trying to pursue a career like yours on how should they deal with those challenges? I think uh, one of my challenges that I faced was I found college was definitely, uh, I loved my college. I went to Buffalo State College and I always when I was doing my bachelor's degree in college, I remember I had a professor who I loved and liked so much. I even had a crush on him. And one of the challenges I faced was racism. And I remember when I told my professor, Dr. C, we had such a great bond, such a great relationship. And I remember saying to him, you know, Dr. C, I want to do my master's in social work. He said, Kathleen, you can't do your master's in social work because you're going to do bad on the GRE. Therefore, you're not going to be able to do a master's in social work. And Vamshi, you know, at that moment, when someone that influential, that significant, that someone you really admire, I mean, when I went to social work, whatever, 401 class, I was so excited to be there. And when class ended, Dr. C and I would stay after and talk for a time, you know, for a long time about all kinds of different social issues. So honestly, I thought he was on my side. When he said that to me, that I could not go ahead and pursue my master's because I was minoritized and that I was Black. I was shaken inside, but I did not let that deter me. What's really interesting in this whole story, Vamshi, is that when I applied to get into my SUNY Albany Advanced Standing Program, I was the only person in my school, in that class, that was accepted into the Advanced Standing Program. And I remember at that moment in time, we were in a higher level class and all of the individuals were in a circle and everyone kind of was waiting to hear and everyone at that point knew. Some people, they had what they called non-matriculated acceptance. So they were able to go and depending on how they did, they might get accepted. But I did not, I was accepted. And that was for me, so for me, I'm a believer, I am a Christian, that's my faith. I felt it was somewhat of a restorative in how 
for me, I was like, oh, look at God showing off. Here he told me that I couldn't do it, but I was the only one that got accepted into the advanced standing program. That was definitely one of my challenges. And I think also one of my challenges is growing up with my father, who was verbally abusive and physically abusive at times to my mother and to me, to me and my sister. And so one of the things my father always did, especially when I was in elementary school, he would consistently tell me that I was dumb because I could not understand math. He would hit me on the head and say, you're dumb. I, I feel that, but I got double messages, but then he would say to me, you can go and get a PhD, which I haven't done yet, but I will. And so I got those double messages. So in my mind, I really began to internalize that well, maybe I am dumb. But I never really believed it. There were moments in my life where I felt like that that dumb spirit would want to attach itself to me, but I would not allow it. I would persevere and push against it and continuously educate myself, got my bachelor's in social work, got my master's in social work. And then a few late years later, went back and did my master's in business administration. And I've also taught many courses at colleges and universities. So I believe even though sometimes people will say things to you to put you down, later on, count it as a gift because it actually pushed you to prove them wrong for me. It pushed me to prove my father wrong, proved me to push Dr. C wrong in those spiritual attacks, I feel, and those verbal attacks in saying, you know what? That is not me. I do not receive that into my spirit. No, that's uh, that's absolutely amazing. Now, as I see it, you did have challenges as a kid, as a young student, as somebody with dreams to pursue higher studies, yet facing hurdles, roadblocks, and challenges, etc. Despite all of that, you are a thriving professional today. You went on to do your master's and now double master's. And you tell me that you want to do a PhD. In fact, you remind me of a, of a good friend who is like, I want to do a PhD and I keep asking why, but I may have to change my opinion now <laughs> after hearing your story. It probably is a deep-rooted passion. Um, but as I see it, Kathleen, you know, there are multiple challenges that at every crossroads, you could have taken either a path of getting depressed by them and saying, oh my God, I'm tired. What, could, what else can I do or a path of, well, these are the things that I need to overcome to show to the world that I can be a person reflecting change, reflecting positive attitude and eventually inculcate the same into other groups and communities. And you chose the right path. That's, that's great. That's a great story to everybody that's listening out there. I think that's pretty much majority of us facing the same story, especially now, I think for the past two years, there are more hurdles that people probably are facing than ever before in this century. So definitely a very, very passion-driven story. Now, while you were going through those challenges, if I may ask, mm -hmm. what are some of the resources that helped you? It's not a day-to-day -day occurrence that people are going through challenges and then they say, no, I'm going to kind of live through all this. I'm going to fight through all this. I'm sure there were some resources that helped you to get that positive attitude. So what are some of those resources that helped you design your plans to overcome those challenges, design your mental state and your physical state to overcome those challenges? 
and move on to become such a successful professional today? Oh, thank you so much for that question. And thank you so much for your kind words. I really appreciate them. I would say my faith. Um, I went to church as a young child by myself with my sister, just the two of us. It wasn't by myself with my sister. And my parents were not going to church at that time. I feel that once I found out and I learned about God and that through God, I can overcome anything. That is what gave me the courage, the capacity, the, the desire to push forward because I said, I'm not by myself. I have God with me. And that really is what helped me and supported me in immigrant communities that was counseling was not something that you really heard about. Mm. It was not something it's and even today it's not celebrated. It's seen as a sign of weakness, not a, as a sign of strength or courage. And therefore that wasn't even an option. Now I know many, many families who have children who are in therapy, which is a healthy thing, but that wasn't the case. I would also say, in terms of people who inspired me when I was growing up was my Mata Janine. My mother didn't have sisters, but she was a distant relative of my dad's and she was so loving. She was so giving. When we went to her house, it was like, I felt like I was one of her children. She didn't treat me any differently than she tried treated Michelle and Pascal. And she was probably one of the driving forces that has helped me to become the woman I am today. I believe because of the way she treated me, I learned how you treat others that are not relative to you, related to you, whether they're a stranger. That is really what motivated me. Her, I feel that has had helped me when I was going through difficult challenges, I would look at her life and she had a degree and she worked for MCI and she took her kids on vacations and uh, took us also and gave us experiences that we never had that my parents didn't know anything about, like going camping and going fishing. And she was just such an inspiration to me that I believe that was. And the other thing I did besides, you know, my faith and looking to my Tante Janine was my journaling. I have journals, Vamshi, I have journals from high school. Hmm. And I believe that journaling, you know, I remember watching Oprah and Oprah said, oh, everyone's time to journal. And I remember looking at Oprah and going, I'm already doing that, honey. <laughs> so before Oprah told everyone to journal, I remember being, you know, watching her as a young girl and being like, I am journaling, Oprah. So I've been journaling. I think what journaling does for people, it allows you to put, without judgment, put your thoughts, your inner, inner thoughts, the things you're confused about, the things that you celebrate, the things, and it shows you, I've looked at my journals and it shows you a journey of your life that you can never recapture or remember in that detail in your memory because life is so dynamic and there's so much happening. If I look at my journals, I go, oh my gosh, is this what I wrote 10 years ago? Look where I am today. Awesome. So those are some of the things that have helped me. Yeah, awesome. Thank you for sharing that, Kathleen. Uh, I just wanted to hop on saying that, that reminds me that 
uh, or that makes me feel that you are one of the best consultants or as a trainer, speaker, facilitator, or an executive coaching. I guess probably this would be um, one of the coaching sessions, I would say, serving not only the organizations, but uh, communities with passion. Uh, there was another social worker which reminded me of what you shared. It is the profession which chooses us. So social work as a profession chose her to help the community. And uh, awesome for, uh, I mean, thank you for sharing that. Uh, that certainly gives us more inspiration, the kind of integrity, the kind of work which we are doing, uh, filling up all the other pos uh, positions which we have for other social workers. Uh, working on policies or working towards uh, creating more advocacies. Again, I understand for the fact that social workers work towards providing equal access to the resources and opportunities, um, which allows them to meet their basic needs. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, over to you, Vamshi. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Raj, for sharing that. Absolutely. You know, if I have to summarize Kathleen and remember it for myself, faith, love, and journaling. Um, you know, three, three very important tools. Absolutely. Uh, even as we speak with um, multiple therapists, counselors, as a part of our regular work, we hear from them that the care starts from within first. They have to teach people to take care of themselves first and then give them additional tools um, to really continue to enhance their own care and seek therapy, et cetera. Just, to, just out of curiosity, so you did mention that the access to therapy has definitely improved. The tools have improved. We are seeing the same thing because of a lot of digital means and you know virtual therapy uh, sessions and designs today. And there are lot of tools for people to access coaching, life coaching, executive coaching, professional coaching, as well as therapy sessions in, mm -hmm. in various formats today. Do you personally think the situation is better for people in terms of accessing that, that coaching and mental health care today? If so, what would you personally expect people, everybody, including clinicians, to be doing more of in order to continue to break the myths around this, this mental health care and continue to kind of utilize some of these resources so that, you know, if people are facing these kinds of challenges every day. I'm sure, you know, I've heard more of those challenges in the last 10 months than ever before. And we think there are more resources to resolve those challenges today. That automatically means the situation has to be better. But do you personally think that people are utilizing all those resources or what should what else do, should they be doing to utilize those resources better? You know, I think that that it depends on, so Vamshi, it depends on where you live and also your socioeconomic status and the education of your family for where I am in my life right now because of who I am and what I know and what I do, I am, I'm very aware of the resources. I'm able to access the resources. In conversation sometimes with other people who are not where I am, am at my life, they may not be aware of the multiple resources. And we need to consistently, continuously, ongoingly educate, educate. One resource that I, I feel that is flattening the level playing ground is the internet. 
And that has opened doors for people to have what they may not have. Now, for example, I co-lead the Capital Region Professional Women of Color Network. That is a Facebook page. People on that page consistently say, I'm looking for a therapist. Does anyone know one? We have Village Consulting here in the Capital Region and so many others. And these are Black, Indigenous men and women of color who are doing the work. So now I think with having the social media, people being on social media, asking for what they want, instead of opening the yellow pages and just going through a whole list, now there is more accessibility if people are looking for it and they know how to access that. I have to, I wonder about the people who are, who may not have access to the internet. They are a group of people we don't talk about, but actually there are people out there who do not have access to the internet, who do not have laptops and other things to access those resources. But I do believe the social media does somewhat level the ground and with the flick of a computer, um, cell phone, you can access those resources today. In terms of how do we get people to not see counseling as a sign of weakness? I believe there has been more, my experience has been, what I've noted and noticed in conversation, it's becoming, it's debunking those stereotypes now. No, I know so many people of color who are now in therapy and realize that, you know what, it's not a bad thing. And I also myself spent a lot of time educating. I myself have been in therapy. I needed to have be in therapy when, with my father issues and some of the things that I experienced as a child. And so even people who do this work, I have an executive coach. I do not suggest, recommend, guide people to doing things or suggestions of things that I myself have not done as well. Uh, that's awesome. I think that's a great point. Uh, experiencing those solutions firsthand and then being able to recommend, I think automatically builds that trust. Absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. Moving into, you know, we talked about people, individuals, health, mental health, etc. That actually nicely segues me into, there's also organizations that have to look at their own health, organizational health, right? That's what we call like, you know, you do a lot of work in helping organizations with their with their culture health. I would put it that way, with the health of their culture, especially in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. Um, I know your consulting group does a lot of work there. I also absolutely believe that your social work and your professional training in the social work space and in the, you know the affecting change in the group setting space nicely positions you to help organizations now really impact positive change within their own internal culture. So tell tell us a little more about that work. What are some of the things that you're observing there? And you know, how do you provide those kinds of coaching services to organizations? Plus, what are some of the myths in this space that you really are trying to debunk in the DEI space with respect to organizations? The two, like I said, I think it, it has been a topic of our day-to-day -day lives recently, along with people's health, pandemic, and mental health, 
the thing that we all hear every day is you know what else could we do in the in the diversity equity and inclusion space so with you playing a major role there through a consulting firm today in that space what are some of the things that you are seeing in that and what are some of the myths that you and your group are trying to really break in that space i would say in terms of in the dei space everything starts with the leadership if the leadership says you know what kathleen you know what we we don't we don't want to start with the leadership then i say there's no need to start at all because if your leadership is not present you are sending a message presence sends a message so you need to be present and you need to have presence it's not only writing a check and saying okay great we're hiring the mclean group it's about having the people at the top who make the decisions it is absolutely critical my observations in the work is that it's through a lot of conversation we do not play pray or live together therefore we don't know each other white black native indian native uh, multiracial biracial we live segregated lives then we get to work and then woo let's all blend and get along together and that usually doesn't work out very well in many organizations because people don't understand each other there are cultural things people do there are foods people eat and people say oh that smells and very inappropriate things that people just have no awareness they're being offensive my observation in my work is that people have shared with us that the work we do has been transformational and that it carries over not only to their DEI world but to every piece of their being cuz all our work we're about building community through conversation through icebreakers and we find that people say Kathleen you know I worked with this person for 10 years I didn't know through this through this one module we do they go I didn't know that for the for 20 years that this person like boating so it's getting to know each other building community what people have said to me uh I work predominantly with you know all people in the organization but some organizations I work in there is no one but white people I am and someone on my team might be the only one that looks like me and even I have team somebody on my team who is white as well and I may be the only person that looks like me right in some projects I'm working with and what people have said is Kathleen I never thought about anything we've discussed I have had a whole mindset shift and they said Kathleen once you see it you can never unsee it I was at a meeting recently and one of the women who was in my session for a year said to me because I was there and she gave her testimonial she said I was in a session with Kathleen McLean she said at the end of every chapter of this book we were unpacking which is waking which is a uh, Tatum's text why all the black children sitting together in the cafeteria that changed my life. She said after each session I would go to my car 
and I would cry every single week. She said, it changed me from my inner to my outer because all the things we discussed were things I felt and I never realized how passively racist I was. And I have two nephews who are black that live with me. And so I really struggled with what I was experiencing. I came up with a conclusion that I had a lot of, I had so much bias and racism that came up the forefront. And you know what, as it was coming up for me, she said, that's what made me cry every week because I hated the way that I felt that. So when people go through it, they said, there, there is a way that I do it. Now I was born on Valentine's day. So that's where the love comes from. So I can't help but love. And so I do it with, with a spirit of love, with a spirit of compassion, but I also don't hold back. I hold people accountable and I let them feel what they're feeling. Now that's a, that's a great point. You reminded me of um, something where, when you said, you know, why all the black children are sitting together or why people can't see a certain things. <clears throat> a long time ago, when I was um, working uh, for a big company, I, I worked for very few big companies in my past life. I've always been kind of a startup guy. Uh, but when I worked for that company, at specific company events and team conferences, et cetera, where we would have large groups of people. And we would all have our attendee numbers, et cetera. And we would all have the table numbers where we would actually go go sit or we would have the table number we choose to go and sit at the table and then we used to have a couple of key leaders who came before their part of the presentation they always what they did was randomly picked people by their numbers etc and then said oh okay you're now going to a different table choose which one mm-hmm. because most of the times what happens is you know people go sit at the table that they're comfortable because you know they just want to sit in their groups right so so they would randomly reshuffle and then now okay go interact with your this this new team i think i think there was huge benefit of doing such things where you know you are quote unquote asked to go interact with other people learn about those other people otherwise you're living in your own comfort zone so i think i think there is a bit that everybody has to do in that in this space absolutely definitely comes from leadership because that was something that the leadership initiated but it also helped everybody did their part and the other thing that comes to my mind is, like you said, organization success also depends on how you're able to collectively work together. And like you rightly said, how are you able to work together when you do not know each other at at a level that you should be knowing to work together? Reminds me of a, of a graphic where you know people are trying to move a big mountain, big rock, not a mountain, but rock. If everybody's pushing from all different directions, we know those forces don't align and the rock wouldn't move. All of them have to push it in the same direction from the same side. Mm-hmm. But for all of them to do that, for all those forces to align, they should all be like connected to make sure they're pushing that rock in that one direction. So you know, being sensitive about others' cultures, sensitive about others' preferences, others' habits and you know things like that which comes from really deeply understanding what that actually means i think helps organizations hugely and, and you know vamshi oh sorry did i interrupt you no 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 go ahead um, i think the work that many of us 
professionals do in leadership DEI space is going back to kindergarten. What did we learn in kindergarten? All our teachers would say, oh, be nice. Don't don't touch. Don't touch people. Don't, you know, give them space. Well, those are the things we learned in kindergarten. Yeah. And we just re need to relearn them. No bullying. Don't, yeah. Don't, you know, move, you know, because, you know, kids like to just get on top of each other and they don't give each other space. And we're like, give each other space. Don't yeah. touch her hair. Right. How many white women have come up to me, touch my hair? And I'm like, why are you touching me? I don't even know you. And so I think just going back to that, but I wanted to talk to you about the myths. I know you had asked about yeah. that. And so some of the myths, you know, I actually created a whole list. I got some other DEI professionals to actually assist me with this because I was like, you know what? Uh, this is such a good question. I definitely want to make sure I get more uh, feedback. And so I did put it out there to my a group of uh, women, actually. Um, so some of the myths are diversity and awareness training alone cannot solve systemic issues. That's one. Number two, it is a set of practices. It is a mindset. It's not a set of practices. It is a mindset, is a mindset. shift. Yeah. All black and brown people cannot do the work. I feel like I need to repeat that. All black and brown people cannot do the work. I have a dear friend of mine. She works in finance. When What happened with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. It seems like companies everywhere were recruiting all the black people and the brown people in their organizations and like, hey, teach us, educate us. No, it's a skill set facilitated. Uh, and people from DEI professionals, they could be social workers, they could be lawyers, they could be mathematicians. It really, but they, in addition, besides their degree, have gone on to do lots of training to learn about facilitation, to yeah. learn about, you know, Johari's window, to learn about uh, emotional intelligence, to really learn about body language and human behavior. So you don't just show up and be like, okay, I can do this. Other things, DEI statement is a commitment, not a slogan. If you have a great statement out there, maybe it looks pretty on your website, but it's not doing anything. It is mm. not, it's performative, not action oriented. Mm. DEI is not a destination. You never get there. Listen, whether we are black or white, Indian, native, Asian, we have all been indoctrinated and not educated. Therefore, we are all on a journey of, of undoing racism and undoing white supremacy. Because even though black and brown people, we do not have the power to be racist, we still have internalized many things that have harmed and hurt us because we are swimming in the culture of white supremacy. The other myth is if you have a diversity committee, then we're all good. That having a committee doesn't mean you arrived. And those are some of the myths. And then also diversity is not inclusion. Just because you have diversity, right? Diversity is just differences. You can have 50 people in your organization. You're like, we are so diverse and we embrace diversity. Yes, oh yes, you have 50 people. That's nice that you have black and brown people, but who's the CEO and who are all the leaders? You can have diversity and you may not have inclusion. So mm -hmm. we have diversity, which is of course differences. We have 
Inclusion, which is including. We have equity is giving people what they need, but liberation is taking it to another step where you are actually letting them drive it and let the people drive what's, what is happening, right? So diversity is having black and brown people at the party, you know, Equity is making sure everyone has what they need at the party. So maybe some people can't, are not able to dance at the party. Maybe they need to sit down at the party. So are there chairs at the party for those people? Right. And then in inclusion is making sure people feel included. Is everyone talking to them? Is someone, is everyone saying hello? Do they feel like, is there is there food for everybody there? Are the, the people who are vegan, can they eat? How about people who don't drink alcohol? Can they, I don't drink alcohol, can they drink alcohol? And then liberation is what are we doing to change these systems, to shake them up so that we can liberate people from these ideas, these notions and these stereotypes. Absolutely, Kathleen. If I may request, please send that list to me separately. I want to have it bolded, written, and because most of the times these myths are, I think, embraced as as these positions and facts, sometimes involuntarily, because you do not know you're doing it. So I think having that out there, reading about it, I'm like, oh yeah. Like for example, having a training set up in the company does not mean anything if you really are not committed to the performativeness of that training. I think those things need to be published. If I were to add one thing to it, just for my own sake, which one thing that I have learned in a very hard way also is equality is not sufficient. Equity needs to be propagated, right? I mean, most people don't even understand the difference between those two. Like everybody think, oh, we give equal opportunities. It's not sufficient. You need to give people what they need because few people might need different. You know, a great example that my good friend shared with me once was, you know, there is a big wall um and then equal opportunities oh every one of you can go look beyond the wall oh yeah this person is six four he can easily go look beyond the wall but what about the four feet people they need a chair to go look beyond the wall so just saying that everybody has the equal opportunity to go look beyond the wall is not sufficient you need to provide the tools that these people need to actually go be look beyond the wall that was a great great graphic way that really got fixed in my mind to understand equality and equity and i think that's a distinction that I would strongly add to the myths. Uh, but having said that, everything that you just said, I think if correctly practiced within organizations in a performative manner, not just actions matter, that's again very important. Like you said, I'm going to remember that and even steal from you. Um, I think organizations are poised to change in the best way in you know changing the DNA versus just trying to put you know powder on uh, on something is not sufficient. So. Thank you for saying all of that. And thank you in advance for actually going to share that list with me, which I'm definitely going to use for our organization and for others. Um, I, I can go on and on about this with you for a long time, but I have one last question, uh, which I think uh, will have a great connotation to all of our listeners. And all of you have seen how passionate Kathleen is about <laughs> social workspace, mental health space, as well as organizational health space in the DEI and the myths that she is set on to break been a pleasure talking about all those things. My last question is, I'm sure, you know, you journal a lot, you read a lot. Do you want to remember three people that have had the biggest influence and impact on your ability and your journey in doing this? I will have to say Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, 
My daughter came home when my daughter, my daughter is 26 years old now. When she was six years old, she came home from, yeah, where's Seth? Oh, and so the, 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 the second one is Danielle. She's 26 years old. That was last year, Christmas, actually December 2020. And Danielle came home and she went upstairs and put a towel on her head and started to shake her hair around. And I was like, I didn't know what was going on. I'm like, hmm, what is happening here? What I realized Danielle was doing is she was trying to emulate the white girls in her class by putting the white yellow towel on her head because her hair was braided. At that moment in time, I realized, wow, what is going on here? And I didn't really understand. And then I started to volunteer at her school. At the same time, I had an opportunity. I was teaching my very first course at the College of St. Rose. It was a child and adolescent developmental psychology class. Mm-hmm. I picked up at the time the former version of Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum's book, and she started to talk about racial identity development. And it just grabbed me, right? It just grabbed me in such a provocative way. I was like, this is what I've always needed. And I said, well, if I'm feeling this, there must be other black indigenous people of color feeling this. And that book, so Dr. Tatum is my mentor. I've only, I've talked to her once in my life. That was last summer when she did a webinar and I realized we could actually talk to her. And I literally was in tears talking to her because I just wanted to let her know how she changed my life. And because of her, I was, I, she was my mentor and motivated me to get to this work. I realized what happened with my daughter was that if you can't, if you don't know who you are, you can never become who you can become. So I don't only do this work for my black daughter. I do it for, all children, black, indigenous, children of color, white children, Asian children, multicultural, multiracial. I do it for all of them because if you don't know who you are, you can never become who you can become. So I would say she definitely influenced me out the most out of everyone in, in doing this DEI work. And then I would say my journey, the Haitian woman, I call her the bare-breasted Haitian woman, because I don't know her name and I don't even remember hearing her voice, but her image still lives with me every day. When I get up, I know that I'm living on purpose because of this bare-breasted Haitian woman. And then my matan Janine, who I shared earlier, her love and her, the way she showed up in the world is that just gave me inspiration to show love the way my Matanjani showed love. And sadly, she died of breast cancer when I was a child. And that probably had the most effect and impact on me. Great, great. Thanks for sharing that, Kathleen. I'm you know, very passionate, very, very you know, uh, intimate stories. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. For you all out there who are listening and watching, um, it definitely has been one of my best discussions, best um, interactions, um, you know, a story filled with challenges, but positive attitude to overcome the challenges. Somebody that is a leader in the social workspace, mental health space, and in the DEI space, we all know a lot of those things are very interconnected with each other. Somebody that is affecting positive change in individuals and people's life 
as well as in organizations' lives, helping not only people's individuals' health, but organizations' health. It's a pleasure to have presented you, Kathleen, to our audience and to have had the opportunity to have, you know, share a few minutes with you, talk about your journey, and frankly, learn from you on how to really affect positive change, how to imbibe positive attitude, uh, and what are the tools out there for people to go use in order to improve their own well-being, you know, live, love, and lead out, and you know, be out there. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Famshi. Thank you, Raj. Thank you, Kathleen. I've got um, probably, I would say, two questions. There are so many things which we can go about, uh, about the kind of stories which you had at uh, uh, um, Empire State College or um, with the kind of uh, group coachings which you have done. Uh, probably we could speak about the stories which you had at Russell Sage College. Um, I don't know what goes into the course of World 401, uh, how you engage or how you empower other women to be more influential in their lives um, with uh, probably helping them uh, emphasize on the racial identity development and so on and so forth. But uh, my question would be about um, um, do it yourself marriage retreat in a box. I guess that's something which which I, I enjoyed watching uh, the kind of pictures. So would you would you share about uh, uh, this particular do-it-yourself retreat in a box? <laughs> well, uh, so I definitely am going to be reaching out to my graphic person. I apologize. Uh, my website. I've been married 29 years, so I definitely will be updating that. I've been married 29 years to my high school sweetheart, and this is the love of my life. My husband is my best friend. My friend, Dr. Corey Jameson and Julie Bush are partners. Uh, they have a consulting firm, and they uh, both came up with this DIY marriage retreat. They asked me and several, maybe another 15 couples to give them feedback on the initial DIY box that they completed. And we did that and we found that to be very helpful, beneficial. There were things that my husband and I have been together for 35 years since I was 16 years old. And there were things he didn't know based on some of the question cards they had, we were able to learn more about each other. And so that's us on a date. He was, uh, he just had a birthday. So we went out on an all day date. And I just feel mm -hmm. like he's like, my boyfriend all over again, you know, I just love him. That's my bestie. And so we, uh, we love the DIY box and we highly recommend it. It's Dr. Corey Jameson and Julie Bush. They are on LinkedIn. They are on Facebook. They are, you know, on Twitter and reach out there on Instagram, reach out and get yourself a box. It is worth the investment. We know that Many, many marriages do not succeed in the world and be intentional about investing in your marriage. The only reason I can do the work that I do is because I am so loved and so celebrated and so honored by my husband. I can't go out and give what I give, which is quite a bit in my mentoring and my giving and my doing. If I didn't go home and knew that I had a husband who just nurtured me, cared for me, and just loved me unconditionally. So I feel very blessed. I have a gift. Yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Kathleen, for sharing that. And for all the listeners, you can catch this on 
our Apple podcast and Google podcast. Uh, also, we'll share the recordings with you, Kathleen. Um, any any last minute uh, last minute message? Uh, probably we have another minute. Anything else? I think, that, want I think that that perfect love story was a great message. <laughs> I, would, I, I would want that to be my last memory of this discussion. That was so sweet, Kathleen. That was so sweet and very 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 well said. I think it's it is true of anybody, irrespective of the gender, irrespective of who you are. I think if you feel celebrated within yourself and by your close circle, you can actually go help others. That's a, that's a very, very sweet and very powerful message. And um, uh, thank you, Wamshi. Um, in case there, there's one file which I wanted to play, which is like a, a story of our uh, dear black men. This is a file which I wanted to add up. If you have time, probably this would be for two or three minutes. If you want to catch up with another meeting which is pending, um, uh, you you could go. This is something which I wanted everybody to. Shall we shall we play that, or do you have time, Wamshi? This is this would take like two minutes. Uh, uh, please go ahead, Kathleen. It was a pleasure uh, meeting you today. I definitely need to run uh, at the top of the hour. It's already there, but. Um, you know, before you play that, Raj, I again, once again, want to say thank you to Kathleen. Uh, we'll have good small bites of this session circulated within our audience as well. I think there have been so many learnings, so many good pieces of information and uh, good recommendations from today's session that we will be sure to kind of propagate more. And you will for sure get a recording of all this. Uh, but for you all out there, uh, please go check the website out. Um, and I would strongly recommend sharing this this video, this interview with others as well in our network. Thank you so much for your time again. Um, we will for sure be in touch. I'm sure there's going to be more collaboration between, between us in the future. Thank you so much, Vamshi. Thank you. Thank you, Vamshi. Raj, uh, thank you so yeah. much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks. And we'll, Kathleen, we'll end this with uh, um, a love letter to black men. Uh, I, I wanted to play this because this is amazing. Thank you. You're welcome. Dear black kings and princes, I am your friend. I am your mom. I am your sister. I am your daughter. I am your cousin. I am your auntie. I am your wife. I am your family. I feel your pain and I felt compelled to write you a letter to express that I see you, I hear you, and I stand with you. I know in school you have been misunderstood when you laugh out loud. I hear your laugh as echoes of joy. I know you've been told you can't be because of the color of your skin. I know people cross the street when they see you coming. I see the strike that repeated action takes on your soul. Just keep pressing forward with your head up high. I know you make yourself physically smaller by slouching your shoulders to make yourself look less threatening. Scripture tells you that you were created in God's inmost being. Praise Him because you are fearfully and wonderfully made. At work, you've become the spokesperson for the black man. I hear the exhaustion in your spirit. I see you at the mall, attempting to buy a Mother's Day gift. I see you 
once again ignoring the persistent glare of the security guard. I see how many elevators you allow to pass you by until you get an empty one so you don't make someone feel uncomfortable. I feel the pain of always having to make space for others while no one makes space for you. I promise I will continue to fight for you in every space I occupy, my brothers. I love each one of you intentionally from the bottom of my heart and my hands are on your Thank you, Kathleen. In fact, this is one video which made me get in touch with you. Um, probably you should write another poem on uh, Asians um, because me sitting here in India, though we are working for the US markets with their staffing needs, though our company is headquartered in New York, probably you should write another poem for Asians out there. I know the kind of feeling which any uh, Asian would go through. So I'd be waiting to hear from you and it's, Good to know that you're journaling right from high school. Probably I will start journaling from today, putting my thoughts or penning all my thoughts. And I love the way you put it across saying, honey, uh, Oprah, <laughs> I've been doing that for ages. So this entire show was nothing uh, which was less of like a Oprah Winfrey talking or probably it's, it's an honor to have you as our guest. Uh, probably if you could share uh, or probably if you would you more insights on um, uh, anything which which is in terms of doing virtual events or probably as you served on American Marketing Association Board of Directors as a secretary and chair for programming and events. Uh, this would be my last question for the day. I mean, I, probably there's so many things which we can go on and on, but what would you advise as uh, somebody who was into programming or events for anybody out there uh, who is doing virtual events, Kathleen? I, I advise when you're doing virtual events um, that you do things to really engage your audience. And some of the things that I do are I start off my audiences always with some sort of a breathing technique, meditation, because everyone is under a lot of stress. We are still living under a pandemic. We're still living under uh, anti-Black sentiment, anti-Asian sentiment, homophobia, and all those things, they are affecting all of us, no matter what our religion, our faith, our gender, our race is. These are weighing down on us. So as we bring a calming energy to whatever virtual workshops you're doing, take time to acknowledge people's humanity. Take time to do that. That's one thing I would do. And allow time for your audience to be in conversation with you. I know the virtual space is challenging for some people, but if you're the only one talking and engage in your audience, I know that sometimes they're time limited. So use the chat box, give people an opportunity to get into groups and share and talk and conversate. And I know every audience is different, every, you know, Whatever, whatever topic may be, I would say the number one rule 
number one suggestion is allow people be present of their humanity. Okay. That's awesome. That's, that's, that's again, uh, one of the best ways you put it because you've been uh, through that experience. Um, I love the fact that you engage with uh, lots of individuals on LinkedIn, on Facebook, and all the positivity around. Some of uh, your engagement, or probably the way you put it across on social media, is one reason which made me get in touch with you. And uh, in the beginning, I was a little skeptical uh, whether you would accept or invite or not, but I'm so glad uh, <laughs> that you accepted our invite. And it's an honor once again. Thank you for sharing all your in, in, insights and a big shout out to your um, high school sweetheart and all the six pack <laughs> family members, I would say, all the other five uh, other amazing participants and all your friends and family uh, out there. Again, everybody on LinkedIn who is supporting. Uh, we never had a guest uh, in the last five months of pandemic. We started this show uh, five months prior to now in December of uh, 2020 during the pandemic where we wanted to impact clinicians, uh, get a different perspective of um, the people who are quite active on social media, sharing their uh, knowledge, insights, and experience. But we, we are so glad that you are one of our first guests who shared or tagged almost everybody whom you can in the little amount of time you had. We were so happy at DirectShift's um, you sharing, I don't know if it was your virtual assistant or if it if it if it was anybody from your team but thank you so much kathleen uh for everything which you have done so far and uh, we will will share the recordings as Wamshi had mentioned and i want to thank uh rosalind also um rosa for thank you for managing everything with kathleen uh, that would be the last thing and um, thank you so much we will catch you with another episode of direct shift stories uh, I'll talk to you. I'll stay in touch with you, Kathleen. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Raj. You have and blessings to your entire family. Thank you. It means okay. a lot, and we'll stay in touch. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care.